Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, Chapter 7 This chapter will introduce radical changes into the fabric of the Nephite nation. In fact, Third Nephi, Chapter 7, will show societal and governmental devolution at its very worst in the Book of Mormon, until centuries later when Mormon tells us about conditions in his own day. As verse 2 of this chapter will tell us, And the people were divided one against another, and they did separate one from another into tribes, every man according to his family and his kindred and friends, and thus they did destroy the government of the land. And what's behind such a change, then? Mormon explains it on the individual level in the next few verses. As he does so, one can almost sense a palpable disgust. He says in verses 6-8, through eight, And the regulations of the government were destroyed because of the secret combination of the friends and kindreds of those who murdered the prophets. And they did cause a great contention in the land, insomuch that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Yea, there were but few righteous men among them. And thus six years had not passed away since the more part of the people had turned from their righteousness like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire. These radical, intrinsic changes to Nephite society, however, are about to be overshadowed entirely by extrinsic forces, which are foretold events that are so cataclysmic in nature that the Nephite narrative will forever change from that point forward. That will come in the next chapter, in 3 Nephite chapter 8. So, as normal as things are not in this chapter, in 3 Nephite chapter 7, it does mark the final pre-cataclysmic chapter in Mormon's entire abridgment. In that sense, at least, it is the last normal chapter that we will encounter. Everything as we know it is about to change. So before we come to all of that, let's come to an understanding of the things that happen in this chapter, in Third Nephite chapter 7. As devolved as things are, these Nephite tribes are still no friends of the Gadianton robbers that experienced a resurgence at the end of the previous chapter. These robbers, whom we might even refer to as Neo-Kingmen, murdered the chief judge, Laconius II, with the hope of ruling the entire government under their king, Jacob. The aforementioned tribes, while still lacking enough unity to exist as a functioning government body, were still in agreement as to this particular issue. As verse 11 says, they were enemies, yet they were united in the hatred of those who had entered into a covenant to destroy the government. That again is a reference to the agreement that was entered into by these uh, priests, lawyers, and judges at the end of the previous chapter. This forced Jacob, this King Jacob, and his band to relocate. 
Verse 12 will tell us that Jacob, seeing that their enemies were more numerous than they, he being the king of the band, therefore he commanded his people that they should take their flight into the northernmost part of the land, and there build up unto themselves a kingdom until they were joined by dissenters. For he flattered them that there would be many dissenters. And they became sufficiently strong to contend with the tribes of the people, and they did so. So these are the prevailing conditions in the last normal chapter in Mormon's abridgment. Normal, so to speak. Or again, to put it more accurately, in the last pre-cataclysmic chapter, before everything changes, before that night of darkness comes that Amulek spoke of, where it will no longer be possible for most of these wicked people to repent, because the lion's share of them are about to be destroyed. Could anything good be happening at the same time as this? Well, incredibly, yes. And there is a lesson for us to see as things degenerate in our own modern time. The remainder of 3 Nephi chapter 7 will show us that Nephi continues to try the virtue of the word of God on the people during this time. And in fact, he does see some success. Verse 26 will tell us, And there were many in the commencement of this year that were baptized into repentance. That's the final verse in this chapter. This reminds us that during times as dark as 3 Nephi chapter 7, there can be people like Nephi who having been visited by angels, as verse 15 will say, and also the voice of the Lord, therefore having seen angels and being eyewitness, and having power given unto him that he might know concerning the ministry of Christ, and also being eyewitness to their quick return from righteousness unto their wickedness and abominations. And he did administer many things unto them, and all of them cannot be written, and a part of them would not suffice. Therefore they are not written in this book, And Nephi did minister with power and with great authority. For it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words, for so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. And in the name of Jesus did he cast out devils and unclean spirits, and even his brother did he raise from the dead after he had been stoned and suffered death by the people. And the people saw it and did witness of it. And he did also do many more miracles in the sight of the people, In the name of Jesus. And during times as dark as Mormons, there can be men like Mormon. And by extension, therefore, there can in times as dark as ours be men like Russell M. Nelson, who are equally qualified for the work to which they are called, to lead the man and woman of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery which is prepared to engulf the wicked, as Mormon put it in Helaman chapter 3 and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and with all our holy fathers to go no more out. So in the first section of 3 Nephi chapter 7, which extends from verses 1 through 8, we can see that this secret combination, which we'll later learn is led by a man named Jacob, Uh, is successful in murdering Laconius too. However, in so doing, we'll discover that they are unsuccessful in replacing him with a king. This is because the entire government breaks down. Uh, They have effectively destroyed the regulations of the government to the degree that the larger population has now devolved into tribes. So that's what we'll read of here in these first eight verses. This wicked band then, led by Jacob, Uh, still goes to appoint him as their king. But because they're so much smaller than this main tribal government, they're outnumbered, 
and they're going to have to escape. And so they do so uh, with a speedy flight, as we're told, and they escape to the north, and they begin a kingdom there. Their uh, attitude then is that they'll add to their numbers, and then um, undoubtedly they will uh, still want to come down and achieve their original objective, which is to turn the Nephite nation into a kingdom that is ruled by Jacob. In verse 14, we'll find Mormon describing this tribal government in more detail and the pact that exists between these tribes and also their unfortunate attitude towards the prophets during this time. So we've just kind of seen them withstand these uh, Gadianton robbers as led now by Jacob, but they still only have so much respect for one another and little respect at all for the prophets. In fact, they did cast them out and did stone them, as we see at the end of verse 14. Now for the remainder of this chapter, we turn to the ministry of Nephi. So that piece of the narrative and talking about the tribal government that now exists and their relationship to the prophets and their relationship to the Gadianton robbers and the flight of these robbers to the north, all of that is left to be described later, which we would expect to happen in 3 Nephi chapter 8. However, as I mentioned in the introduction, things are about to change so dramatically that we really won't pick up on the details of that story. Presumably, all the players in that story are about to be killed. So now again, in verse 15, we go to Nephi's ministry, calling him Nephi the Younger. We haven't talked about Nephi very much uh, prior to this point, so it's here that we'll gain more insight into his character and into his effectiveness as a prophet. So in verses 15 through 20, We'll read how he ministers throughout the land, and in so doing, he performs many miracles. It becomes very clear that he is a very powerful prophet and a worthy successor to his great father. Now, in verses 21 through 23, only a few, it says, are converted unto the Lord in the 31st through the 33rd years. This is becoming intensely interesting to us because we know that this is corresponding now with the ministry of the Savior himself in the old world, as we're in the 31st, 32nd, and 33rd years. It does say, however, in verse 21, that as many as were converted did truly signify unto the people that they had been visited by the power and spirit of God, which was in Jesus Christ, in whom they believed. So, joining the church at this time and becoming converted unto the Lord was certainly not um, a popular movement. Those who did uh, showed great strength in so doing. In the final verses of this chapter, in verses 24 through 26, we are reminded once again, as we have been in so, on so many occasions in the past, that when the word is preached with power to this degree, it's also accompanied by baptism. In other words, a covenant relationship with Christ is necessary to effectuate the transformation that the word begins That, of course, gives us great insight uh, into our own lives and uh, our journey towards the same outcome. So now to return to verse 1 for a reading. And now, behold, I will show unto you that they did not establish a king over the land. They, in this case, again, are these judges and uh, the lawyers and the chief priests that conspired with them to save these rogue judges from Laconius. And then their plan went even further and they wanted to destroy Laconius too. 
and then put a king in his place. So that's who they is in this case. So they did not establish a king over the land. But in this same year, the 30th year, they did destroy upon the judgment seat, yea, did murder the chief judge of the land. He's not named here, but that most clearly is Laconius, son of Laconius. And the people were divided one against another, and they did separate one from another into tribes. You can just wonder what they're thinking here. Uh, We certainly have seen this so many times uh, in Helaman um, during this whole stretch where the chief judge has been killed on so many occasions that maybe the people just felt like uh, it's not worth it to try this yet one more time. And these these chief judges were appointed by the people, but by this point the people simply became too fragmented and they were clearly associating with particular group identities that they felt that that they belonged to the most uh, during this uh, kind of degenerate time. So it says in verse 2, And the people were divided one against another, and they did separate one from another into tribes, every man according to his family and his kindred and friends, and thus they did destroy the government of the land. And every tribe did appoint a chief or a leader over them, and thus they became tribes and leaders, leaders of tribes. So there is some semblance of order here. Now behold, there was no man among them, save he had much family and many kindreds and friends. Therefore their tribes became exceedingly great. Of this incident, John L. Sorensen has written, The descendants of Lehi's party consistently divided themselves into seven tribes. Significantly, these references came from the earliest as well as the latest periods of Nephite history, indicating the importance and persistence of kinship as a basic element in this society. Though different forms of government might come and go in Nephite history, the underlying family fabric of the society remained permanent. Even in the darkest days of political collapse, all the people still had much family and the tribal structure was present to supplant the collapsed government. And it's true, we have read of these family divisions on other occasions as early as Jacob chapter 1. Verse 5, Now all this was done, and there were no wars as yet among them, And all this iniquity had come upon the people because they did yield themselves unto the power of Satan. Now, as we have discussed on other occasions, would the people have seen it that way, that they had yielded themselves unto the power of Satan? Well, probably not. They were pawns, though, and that's what was happening. And this is the perspective of this master abridger and editor in Mormon. And so we get his perspective as we read this with him, and we can see that that's what was happening then. And uh, we're in danger of having that happen again in our day. Verse 6, And the regulations of the government were destroyed because of the secret combination of the friends and kindreds of those who murdered the prophets. So remember again, the end of the previous chapter, there were prophets who were sent among the people. They were murdered by these judges, these rogue judges. And then a secret combination was formed to protect these judges. Verse 7, And they did cause a great contention in the land insomuch that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Yea, there were but few righteous men among them. This is quite incredible to consider because this emergence of this secret combination stems from a very specific incident, and it happened very quickly. Uh, That's kind of chilling. Verse 8, And thus six years had not passed away since the more part of the people had turned from their righteousness, like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire. And so this is happening even within that time frame. This expression, uh, like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire, 
can be seen in Proverbs uh, chapter 26, verse 11. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. Also in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So we can read between the lines here and see that things have not gone the way that this small secret combination expected. They are a very powerful internal group of people, judges, lawyers, and priests. They expected to take over the government and to rule over all, but instead things break down considerably. They still, however, as we discover in verses 9-13, through 13, are going to appoint their king, and we discover that the leader this whole time has been Jacob. And so that was their intention. They're still going to do this, but they're not going to uh, get their wish. They're going to instead flee to the north. So verse 9 Now this secret combination, which had brought so great iniquity upon the people, did gather themselves together and did place at their head a man whom they did call Jacob. And they did call him their king. Therefore he became a king over this wicked band, and he was one of the chiefest who had given his voice against the prophets who testified of Jesus. So that uh, stands to reason. And now we have it confirmed by Mormon that he was one of the chief who spoke out against these prophets who were sent among the people. Verse 11, And it came to pass that they were not so strong in number as the tribes of the people. That makes sense because the Gadianton robbers had been eradicated uh, by the end of 3 Nephi chapter 4 after that uh, encounter uh, that was first war and then it was siege. And uh, their numbers diminished down to nothing during that time. So Jacob and his followers have had little time to add to their numbers And so they were not as strong in number as the tribes of the people, the larger population of the people in the Nephite nation, who were united together, verse 11 says, save it were their leaders did establish their laws, everyone according to his tribe. Nevertheless, they were enemies. Notwithstanding, they were not a righteous people, yet they were united in the hatred of those who had entered into a covenant to destroy the government. Okay, so again, we can see that uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is kind of what's at play here, and that these people still did not approve of uh, Jacob and his his new budding band, and uh, so they're, they're going to drive them out. Now, something that we can also see here is that these tribes are somewhat similar to the tribes of Israel. Um, they became very godless when we think about the uh, the three kings, and then Rehoboam and jo- Jeroboam, and and their division into the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom. And there, there weren't very many uh, righteous prophets uh, that we saw as time went on in these kingdoms. And they were all in the, in the southern kingdom when they, when they did come. Excuse me, righteous kings um, when they did come along. And so those tribes in that case, they were sometimes very hostile towards one another as well. John Sorensen has said the tribal and kinship structure had always been in place uh, we can see that from Jacob chapter 1, verse 13. What we see in 3 Nephi chapter 7 is a default government, not centralized like that formerly headed by kings or chief judges, yet sufficiently capable to enact and administer their laws, everyone according to his tribe. A version of that dispersed political structure surely continued following the appearance of Jesus Christ because nothing is said of any central government from then until possibly the time of Mormon. Verse 12, so here's how Jacob and his band handle this. Therefore Jacob, seeing that their enemies were more numerous than they, 
he being the king of the band, therefore he commanded his people that they should take their flight into the northernmost part of the land, and there build up unto themselves a kingdom, until they were joined by dissenters, for he flattered them that there would be many dissenters, and they became sufficiently strong to contend with the tribes of the people, and they did so. And so speedy was their march that it could not be impeded until they had gone forth out of the reach of the people, and thus ended the thirtieth year, and thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi. So we can presume from this that these tribes could not produce a unified army fast enough that was capable of overtaking Jacob and these people. And so now there is the looming prospect of their growth into something as formidable as the group that Gideonhi led when he came against Laconius and his people. So that prospect is there. But of course, this whole story is going to be disrupted by the cataclysmic events of the next chapter. So we set all of that aside now, never finding out how this turns out because they're presumably all killed by the tempest that's about to come. And now we're going to turn in verse 14. Oh, I, I misspeak. First in uh, verse 14, we're going to learn a little bit more about these tribes and their government. And then we'll turn in verse 15 and talk about Nephi the Younger's ministry. So verse 14, And it came to pass in the thirty and first year that they were divided into tribes, every man according to his family, kindred, and friends. Nevertheless, they had come to an agreement that they would not go to war one with another. But they were not united as to their laws and their manner of government, for they were established according to the minds of those who were their chief and their leaders. But they did establish very strict laws that one tribe should not trespass against another, insomuch that in some degree they had peace in the land. Nevertheless, their hearts were turned from the Lord their God, and they did stone the prophets and did cast them out from among them. So there's something somewhat positive happening with these tribes uh, in the sense that they still cast Jacob and the secret combination out from among them and that they did have kind of civil agreements one with another. However, they did not regard the prophets well enough to protect them, but instead cast them out from among them. So this does not bode well for this tribal government. Ogden and Skinner have written of the preceding 14 verses that we've read, The Nephite government fell with the murder of the chief judge, Laconius II. An apostate then became king over the secret combination responsible for disintegration, and society fragmented into tribes. All this happened because the people did yield themselves unto the power of Satan and allowed a secret combination to flourish. Years ago, President Ezra Taft Benson raised a warning. He said, I testify that wickedness is rapidly expanding in every segment of our society, It is more highly organized, more cleverly disguised, and more powerfully promoted than ever before. Secret combinations lusting for power, gain, and glory are flourishing. A secret combination that seeks to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries is increasing its evil influence and control over America and the entire world. That, by the way, is from an October General Conference in 1988, a talk by President Benson called I Testify. And that is quite a long time ago compared to our day. It stands to reason that such secret combinations have only gained a stronger foothold throughout governments of the world today. Well, now we leave this aspect of the narrative behind and really never to return to it again. Again, as I've mentioned earlier, because of what's about to happen in 3 Nephi chapter 8. But to finish this chapter, we'll now come to verse 15 and talk about Nephi's ministry. And it came to pass that Nephi, having been visited by angels and also by the voice of the Lord, 
Therefore, having seen angels and being eyewitness, now we wonder what being eyewitness means here, whether that's being eyewitness to the angels or also eyewitness to the Lord. Both seem possible. And having had power given unto him that he might know concerning the mystery of Christ, and also being eyewitness to their quick return from righteousness unto their wickedness and abominations. So that's right. Um, All of what we've read for the last several chapters, we know that Nephi has been there. He's been part of it. He was never mentioned in that episode when all the Nephites gathered in Zarahemla and Bountiful, but we know, of course, that he was among them and that uh, he was very much a part of that story. And the thing that we saw in the previous chapter, this quick turn from a time of prosperity and peace to a time of terrible wickedness and devolution and then the emergence of secret combinations, of course, those are the kinds of things that Nephi was an eyewitness to. Uh, that phrase being used twice in this verse, the first time with reference to angels or possibly the Lord himself, and the second time the word eyewitness being used to describe their quick return from righteousness unto their wickedness and abominations. This gives us an opportunity for a moment, because of his relationship to angels that's pointed out here in this verse, to look at some wonderful teachings that have come both from Elder Dallin H. Oaks and then also uh, from Jeffrey R. Holland. So first from Elder Oaks, or I should say President Oaks now. The word angel is used in the scriptures for any heavenly being bearing God's message. The scriptures recite numerous instances where an angel appeared personally. Angelic appearances to Zacharias and Mary, and to King Benjamin and Nephi, the grandson of Helaman, are only a few examples. But the ministering of angels can also be unseen. Angelic messages can be delivered by a voice or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. President John Taylor described the action of the angels or messengers of God upon our minds so that the heart can conceive revelations from the eternal world. That's out of an October 1998 conference address from Elder Oaks called The Aaronic Priesthood and the Sacrament, a great talk that deserves careful consideration. This commentary from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland comes from another such talk uh, called The Ministry of Angels. And he said, But God knew the challenges that Adam and Eve would face, and he certainly knew how lonely and troubled they would sometimes feel. So he watched over his mortal family constantly, heard their prayers always, and sent prophets and later apostles to teach, counsel, and guide them. But in times of special need, he sent angels divine messengers to bless his children, reassure them that heaven was always very close and that his help was always very near. Indeed, shortly after Adam and Eve found themselves in the lone and dreary world, an angel appeared unto them, who taught them the meaning of their sacrifice and the atoning role of the promised Redeemer who was to come. When the time for this Savior's advent was at hand, an angel was sent to announce to Mary that she was to be the mother of the Son of God. Then a host of angels was commissioned to sing on the night the baby Jesus was born. Shortly thereafter, an angel would announce to Joseph that the newborn baby was in danger and that this little family must flee to Egypt for safety. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 2. When it was safe to return, an angel conveyed that information to the family and the three returned to the land of their heritage. From the beginning down through the dispensations, God has used angels as his emissaries in conveying love and concern for his children. Time in this setting does not even allow a cursory examination of the scriptures 
or our own Latter-day history, which are so filled with accounts of angels ministering to those on earth, but it is rich doctrine and rich history indeed. Usually such beings are not seen. Sometimes they are. But seen or unseen, they are always near. Sometimes their assignments are very grand and have significance for the whole world. Sometimes the messages are more private. Occasionally, the angelic purpose is to warn, but most often it is to comfort, to provide some form of merciful attention, guidance in difficult times. When in Lehi's dream he found himself in a frightening place, a dark and dreary waste, as he described it, he was met by an angel, a man dressed in a white robe. He spake unto me, Lehi said, and bade me follow him. Lehi did follow him to safety and ultimately to the path of salvation. Verse 16, as Mormon continues to describe Nephi's ministry, Therefore, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, went forth among them in that same year and began to testify boldly repentance and remission of sins through faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did minister many things unto them, and all of them cannot be written, and a part of them would not suffice. Therefore they are not written in this book, and Nephi did minister with power and great authority. And it came to pass that they were angry with him. That's a pretty predictable response among this particular population. Even because he had greater power than they, for it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words, for so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. This is an interesting statement in many ways, the first of which is that we know that these people had stoned and rejected other prophets, yet it seems that they're unable to do this in Nephi's case. Uh, Second, of course, is that they can't disbelieve his words. Uh, This means that Nephi is in rare error indeed if he has this effect upon these people. And lastly, of course, his faith is so great that angels ministered unto him daily. Um, To have that listed as a a consequence of great faith is is, um, of, of intense interest to us here as we kind of add to our understanding that Elder Oaks and Elder Holland gave us of the role of ministering angels. Verse 19, And in the name of Jesus did he cast out devils and unclean spirits, and even his brother did he raise from the dead after he had been stoned and suffered death by the people. So we've wondered for a while now what Nephi's character was like and whether he is an equal to his father who was such a marvelous prophet and very likely was translated. So is this Nephi equally righteous and powerful to his father? Well, now we're discovering that he indeed was, that he performed many miracles, which even included raising people from the dead, in this case, his own brother. Von J. Featherstone has written, I know of a great man who held his dead son in his arms and said, In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power and authority of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, I command you to live. And the dead boy opened his eyes. This great brother could not have possibly done that. Had he been looking at a pornographic piece of material a few nights before, or if he had been involved in any other transgression of that kind, the priesthood has to have a pure conduit to operate. So uh, a, a great teaching there by Elder Featherstone, and of course tells us much about Nephi. Verse 20, And the people saw it, and did witness of it, and were angry with him because of this power. Uh, incredible that they would be angry at him, while he's raising someone from the dead. But that seems to be the reference here, that that specific miracle incited anger. So here's someone who is very similar to the Savior himself, who is doing similar things uh, right around the same time in the old world, 
who is also performing miracles of this scope, and the people are angry with him as well. It's remarkable to think that Satan could stir people up when something so wondrous is happening right in front of them, but that seems to be what's happening here. And he did also do many more miracles in the sight of the people in the name of Jesus. Ogden and Skinner have written, This Nephi, son of Nephi, was one of the greatest prophets of all time. The voice of the Lord came to him, as did angels, ministering to him daily. He performed many miracles, including raising his brother Timothy from the dead. So it's in chapter 19 of 3 Nephi in verse 4 that we read of that incident again, and this time we learn that his name is Timothy. He was keeper of the Nephite records and later was chosen as one of Jesus' twelve apostles in the Americas, even baptizing the others who were called. It appears that he served the same role as did Peter in the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, president of the Quorum. Daniel Ludlow has written this of Nephi. The prophet Nephi of approximately A.D. 32 was so righteous and had such great faith that angels did minister unto him daily. Although Nephi used this power to try to bless his people, he even raised his own brother from the dead, the wicked people were angry with him because of his power. Thus, despite the great signs and miracles that had been performed for the people, they still disbelieved. Once again, this indicates that signs do not convert unless the conversion of faith follows. So that's wonderfully put by Ludlow. Signs don't convert, but faith does. The conversion of faith is what has to follow after signs such as this. Well, we would love and frankly expect that many people would be converted unto the Lord because of Nephi's powerful Uh, faith and his abilities. Uh, However, here's what we read in verse 21. And it came to pass that the thirty and first year did pass away, and there were but few who were converted unto the Lord. But as many as were converted did truly signify unto the people that they had been visited by the power and Spirit of God, which was in Jesus Christ in whom they believed. The Book of Mormon Student Manual says uh, President Marion G. Romney explained that conversion means to turn from one belief or course of action to another. Conversion is a spiritual and moral change. Converted implies not only mental acceptance of Jesus and his teachings, but also a motivating faith in him and his gospel. A faith which works a transformation, an actual change in one's understanding of life's meaning, and in his allegiance to God in interest, in thought, and in conduct. Verse 22, And as many as had devils cast out from them, and were healed of their sicknesses and their infirmities, did truly manifest unto the people that they had been wrought upon by the Spirit of God and had been healed. And they did show forth signs also and did do some miracles among the people. So this is a very powerful group of converts. Verse 23, Thus passed away the thirty and second year also, and Nephi did cry unto the people in the commencement of the thirty and third year, and he did preach unto them repentance and remission of sins. The thirty and third year, we know what's coming if we have come to the thirty and third year since Samuel's sign of the birth of the Savior. Chauncey Riddle has written, In this final state of wickedness, the Lord sought yet a third time to recover his people, the Nephites. He sent his faithful servant Nephi and others to bear a final witness before the day of wrath and vengeance. The few who were righteous hearkened to the words of the prophets and Nephi. The many who were wicked stonily rejected both them and God, ultimately rejecting their own redemption Now it was the time for the Lord to do his great work of vengeance. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, we can follow this theme through the entire Book of Mormon. Whenever people are 
preached to powerfully, and they are converted by the words that are preached, we can see that fundamental to that converting process is covenant-making with the Lord and the ordinances that ratify or formalize that covenant-making are there. In other words, baptism is part of that. And that's what we discover here in verses 24 through 26. Now, I would have you to remember also, says Mormon. So Mormon is very careful to make this point throughout his abridgment that there were none who were brought into repentance who were not baptized with water. Therefore, there were ordained of Nephi men unto his ministry that all such as should come unto them should be baptized with water. And this is a witness and a testimony before God and unto the people that they had repented and received a remission of their sins. I think there's some carefully crafted symmetry here because this is Nephi's last gesture as a prophet who is working on the earth before the coming of Christ. When we do return to Nephi and he interacts with the Savior directly in 3 Nephi chapter 11, baptism is the thing that gets discussed. And so it kind of bookends everything that comes from now until that incident in 3 Nephi 11. So now the final verse, and there were many in the commencement of this year that were baptized unto repentance, and thus the more part of the year did pass away. So in this case, there were many. Earlier we found that there were just few that responded to Nephi's words. So it seems that he is enjoying increased success as time goes on and as we're moving into the 30 and third year. If these people don't have a full understanding of what their baptism is preparing them for, which of course ultimately it's preparing them for eternity, but if they don't understand that it's preparing them uh, so that they can be counted among the believers who will be present when the Savior returns, they will come to this understanding later. So we can think about those that are saved in the destruction that is to come and the voice that comes and says, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens and yet you would not. And he says, Oh, all ye that, have, that were spared because you are more righteous than they, will you not repent and, and return unto me? So among those who were spared were those who still needed repentance, uh, which should give all of us comfort. Uh, but also among those who were spared undoubtedly were those who were baptized on this occasion, and they were able to be instrumental. And remember that there were disciples that were called when Nephi became the analog to Peter. So maybe it's among some of these that were baptized here on this occasion or, or slightly earlier who became such powerful uh, witnesses of the Savior and became such powerful converts and who performed miracles in their own right, as we have just read. Perhaps some of them are those who became disciples of the Christ later. So uh, we can imagine that all of those things could possibly be true. This is from the Institute Manual. Now that we've come to the end of this chapter, Uh, We've got some beautiful pieces of commentary. One bright spot, it says, in the otherwise sad account of the Nephites turned from their righteousness is the steadfast faithfulness of Nephi and his people. Their example provides a pattern to help us maintain our righteousness during times of wickedness. We read of Nephi's firm testimony, born of personal experience, that he boldly taught repentance and remission of sins through faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. He ministered with power and authority because great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who responded to his testimony were themselves visited by the power and spirit of God. Those who believed were healed, repented, were baptized, and received remission of their sins. Since conversion is the subject at hand as we've come to the end of this chapter, 
The Book of Mormon Institute manual offers this from Richard G. Scott. That's out of a talk that he gave in a conference report in April of 2002, where he said, Each of us has observed how some individuals go through life consistently doing the right things. When difficult choices are to be made, they seem to invariably make the right ones, even though there were enticing alternatives available to them. We know that they are subject to temptation, but they seem oblivious to it. Likewise, we have observed how others are not so valiant in the decisions they make. In a powerfully spiritual environment, they resolve to do better, yet they are soon back doing the same things they resolved to abandon. Sometimes the word converted is used to describe when a sincere individual decides to be baptized. However, conversion means far more than that. President Marion G. Romney explained conversion. Converted means to turn from one belief or course of action to another. Conversion is a spiritual and moral change. Converted implies not merely mental acceptance of Jesus and his teachings, but also a motivating faith in him and his gospel, a faith which works a transformation, an actual change in one's understanding of life's meaning and in his allegiance to God in interest, in thought, and in conduct. In one who is really wholly converted, desire for things contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ has actually died. And substituted, therefore, is a love of God, with a fixed and controlling determination to keep his commandments. Uh, Elder Scott is quoting Elder Romney there from a conference report that he gave uh, at a Guatemala area conference in 1977. Then Elder, Elder Scott continues, Stated simply, true conversion is the fruit of faith, repentance, and consistent obedience. Faith comes by hearing the word of God and responding to it. And by the way, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 expresses that. You will receive from the Holy Ghost a confirming witness of things you accept on faith by willingly doing them. You will be led to repent of errors resulting from wrong things done or right things not done. As a consequence, your capacity to consistently obey will be strengthened. This cycle of faith, repentance, and consistent obedience will lead you to greater conversion with all its attendant blessings. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, 3 Nephi chapter 7, our anticipation is truly heightening. We know what is to come. We know that great destruction will follow in 3 Nephi chapter 8, that the voice of the Lord himself will be heard in 3 Nephi chapter 9 and in 3 Nephi chapter 10. And then after being introduced by the Father, the Son himself, the resurrected and glorious Christ, will appear to the Nephites on that occasion. Truly wonderful things are to come as we progress through these chapters in 3 Nephi. For now, this brings us to the end of this wonderful chapter, 3 Nephi, chapter 7. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel Passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. 
For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.